Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to home, where every week we help you better understand that place where you are living. I am Dean Sharp, the house whisperer, here with you live like I am every weekend, Saturday mornings from 6 to 8 Pacific time, Sunday mornings 9 to noon Pacific time. We've got our th- new three-hour format, and now is the proof because it's just a few minutes after 11, and here I am. Whether you are listening to the local broadcast right here in Southern California or streaming us live from across the country, as so many of you do, or if you've joined in for another episode of the House Whisper podcast, I am just so glad that you are here. Welcome home. We're talking about things you can do with your walls today. Uh, and uh, when we come back to it, I actually want to talk to you about how to hang stuff on your wall, some tips and tricks along the way there. But right now, it is time to go to the phones, find out what is going on with your home today. Let's talk to Gary. Hey, Gary, welcome home. Hi, Dean. Uh, I'm looking to build a uh, house in Pennsylvania, uh, single story, no basement. Uh, I'm interested in two things, uh, polished cement floors and electric floor heating. And I'd like to get your ideas about those. Uh, okay. Um, usual. Well, uh, I'm. You know, polished cement floors. They're they're uh, awesome. It's a it's a great way to go. Uh, <clears throat> the things you need to know about a polished cement floor is that uh, depending on what the theme of the house and the decor is going to be. Uh, you either have to go to great lengths to ensure that that concrete is not going to crack so you can keep it nice and pristine, or uh, you don't worry about uh, micro-cracking in concrete, and you just to kind of incorporate that into the rustic nature of your polished floors, which is something, honestly, that a lot of people do all the time, and it works out really, really well. Uh, I say that because the truth about concrete in the building industry, we always like to joke that there are only two kinds of concrete, concrete with cracks in it and the concrete that hasn't cracked yet. So cracking is inevitable. Now, uh, a a post-tension slab, designing your house with a post-tension slab is one of the ways that you can best ensure that uh, the concrete uh, may not crack ever because post-tension concrete is kind of famous for producing a uniform, very, very strong slab that doesn't suffer from superficial settlement and expansion cracks. Otherwise, you should plan for them, okay? Uh, One of the ways that sometimes people handle a polished cement floor and they don't want the cracks is that they actually just move into the house and they deal with the floors as is for the first few months until whatever micro-cracking that uh, we expect is going to occur, then once those spider cracks have formed, uh, we'll use like an epoxy coating to cover over it all and then use that as the quote-unquote polished uh, cement surface uh, having already covered over the cracks that have initially formed. So that's sort of the cement uh, story. I love uh, a nice 
uh, stained concrete and a and a polished floor, even just a straight up polished floor. A lot of people don't understand that uh, you know concrete can look uh, as attractive as any other kind of tile or wood plank flooring if that's the look that you're going for. And they don't have to be cold, especially if you're talking about radiant heat in the floors. Now the difference here, my friend, is that uh, you said electric uh, floor heating. electrically powered floor heating, that would be one thing. But most of the time, if we're not going to have any other surface to hide our system under, then typically what we would do is what we would pour into or build into the slab would not be electric. It would be a hydronic uh, radiant heat floor. In other words, water tubes that uh, would carry fluid through them, and that's how your floor would radiate heat. So I'm not exactly sure if I hit that one on the head for you, but that's the trick with a just a bare polished cement floor. We got to get that heating element into the concrete, and that usually is not electric uh, at that point. Electric pads usually go on top of subfloors, and then we cover over them with tile or what have you. Uh, typically, we bury hydronic or water base or fluid based systems I should say into cement. Okay, yeah. I uh, I uh, heard you mention that earlier with an earlier caller and that sounds uh, good for me in, in my case. Yeah. Yeah, now that can still be driven primarily by electricity. So I just want to make it clear to everybody. Um electric when we say an electric radiant floor, we're literally talking about conductive wires that heat up. Uh, when you run electricity through them, and that's the heat that radiates through the material. When I talk about a hydronic system, a hydronic system has fluid, warm fluid moving through it. It can still be electric in the sense that, let's say you don't have a gas house, right? That's an all-electric house. The heating uh, uh, device can be electric uh, that the fluid runs through in order to heat itself, like you know, like a... Uh, an all-electric uh, uh, tankless water heater, you know, that kind of a device can heat the fluid that is then pumped into the rest of the house. So it doesn't have to be gas-driven uh, in order to have a hydronic system. It can be fueled by electricity, but the elements themselves are not electric. They are uh, warm tubes of fluid. I just wanted to make that clarification. So, Gary, give it some thought. Uh, and, yeah, again, think about uh, embedding a hydronic system. It's actually, if you're pouring a brand-new slab, now we're really talking about a, a value because your hydronic system uh, will go in. It's really kind of buying essentially a lot of PEX tubing, running it in the right patterns. You're going to want to talk to a hydronic radiant heat company to give you the advice, the patterning, all of that stuff before the slab is poured. But man, it will be uh, it'll be glorious. We actually in uh, you know a place like Pennsylvania and uh, you know places uh, that get cold weather, that get snow, that get ice. Uh, it's not unusual to actually build uh, hydronic and or sometimes radiant electric systems into driveways in order to keep the snow from forming on the driveway. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of options there. Uh, just look into what's available in your area. And thanks for the call, bud. Appreciate it. All right. When we return, let us uh, discuss, shall we, uh, how to stick things onto your walls so that they stay the right way. We'll do that when we come back. You're home with Dean Sharp, the house whisperer. Thanks for joining us on the program. 
we are having some fun today. We're talking about uh, how to tweak your walls. Uh, so from a decor and design perspective, mostly, uh, in order to get the most out of them. I want to make a transition now. I want to turn uh, towards uh, what we can do in terms of getting stuff on your walls. Uh, in other words, doing it the right way. Uh, it's the kind of thing that uh, uh, there are a lot of options out there. They're not all great, and and uh, some of them should be avoided. And what you really need to understand is what option to use in what wall condition. That's what I really would love to uh, cover with you. But first, it's time for another House Call with Dean Sharp, the House Whisperer. Today's house call brought to you by WDC Kitchen and Bath Center. It's a very, very simple concept today. Uh, There has never, ever, ever been such a huge selection of fixtures out there for you. Appliances, yes, but fixtures. And I mean tubs, toilets, uh, faucets, drain systems, uh, faucets for the kitchen, faucets as sinks, sinks galore, okay? Um, we just live in a time in which uh, there is just so much. There is more than there ever has been. And what you need to know is very simply this. They're not all technically on the internet. There's, you know, you could probably find their presence on the internet, but just doing a search for, well, I want this kind of a tub. Don't expect that you're going to see everything on the internet and definitely don't expect that you're going to see them all in your local, you know, kitchen and design showroom. However, if you do your due diligence on the internet and getting yourself out to your local showroom, then you are going to have the broadest possible look at what's available. And that's what I always encourage people to do. Don't just assume that, oh, well, I saw this on the shelf, you know, at the big box store, so I guess that's the kind of tub we should put in. No, 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 no. Do your research. Understand uh, that there is more selection out there than ever before. Now, I don't want it to frustrate you uh, as if there's pressure on you to choose one thing out of 10,000. That's not the point. The point is broaden your understanding. Know that there's a big, wide world sitting before you. Enjoy the process. Window shop your way to the fixtures that your house deserves. How's that sound? There you go. And by the way, as far as showrooms go, no better place to go and see a huge selection of fixtures than your local WDC Kitchen and Bath Center. Okay, let's talk about your walls. Walls, walls, walls. Where did I put my notes here so I know uh, what I've covered and what I haven't? Oh, yeah, how to hang it, how to hang the stuff on your wall. So what do you need to know first? What is the most, it's a quiz, I'm asking you, What's the most important thing you need to know first before you go hanging something on a wall? Hmm. Hmm. All right. You got it? Here it is. What the type of wall is. That is the critical element here. You need to know whether we're dealing with drywall, plaster, concrete, stone, whatever that may be. Because each one of those things, as I was saying before, Uh, will have a pretty big effect on how and what we choose to be the hanging mechanism for uh, whatever stuff you're hanging. So that's the first thing you need to know. The second thing you need to know before you ever get started is what is the weight of what you are hanging? 
Okay, we literally rate wall anchors and wall hanging devices based on what they are expected to hold in terms of weight. So you need to know how heavy is that portrait, how heavy is that piece of art, or what have you. Okay, weigh it. You need to know the weight. You need to know the wall type. Okay, then last thing before we even get to the store and buy a hanger is. What are the anchor points on the item itself? Okay, what does Dean mean by the anchor points? The anchor points are whatever has been provided as the means of attaching it to the wall. So uh, let's just make it simple, and we'll just talk in terms of what's common for uh, like wall art or a portrait or a painting, something like that. You will find usually uh, one of four things. Um, you will find uh, in smaller items, especially what we call the toothed bar, right? It's usually about an inch or so long. It's made out of metal. Two nails uh, fasten it into the back of a wood frame, or maybe it's attached with screws to a metal frame. And what's on the bottom side of this little bar? It kind of it 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 uh, it rises away from the uh, the item, the back of the item, just enough that the head of a screw or a nail would fit comfortably there. And and what's on the back? It's a, a series of little teeth, little triangular teeth, the toothed bar. And what that is, it, it should be hanging smack dab right in the center at the balance point of a piece of art. Uh, and, uh, and yet the toothed bar allows a little bit of discrepancy, a little left, a little right, in order that when you hang that thing on the hanging device, whatever that may be, uh, that you can ensure that it's going to hang level, that it's going to hang plumb and true and not be cockeyed on the wall. That's why you've got the choice of the notches in between the teeth. So number one would be the toothed bar. The uh, the other uh, common thing, this kind of comes with plaques quite often, uh, a lot of wooden items that that sit flat against the wall might have their own pre-drilled hole, okay, a little hole and a notch. You've seen that. The hole uh, is uh, larger so that the head of the hanging device can uh, slide in, and then there's a little slot where it will slide up and kind of lock into place. So you got the tooth bar, you got the drilled hole, or you got the D-ring, okay? The D-ring is exactly what it sounds like. It's a ring. There's usually two of them. D-rings usually come in pairs, one on one side of the frame, the other on the other side of the frame. And uh, they are affixed with a little mounting bracket, and they kind of flap free. And where they mount to the bracket, they're straight, and the rest of it is curved. They're ergo uh, the shape of a letter D. D D-rings can be sitting there all by themselves, where possible, though, a D-ring should have a wire added to it because quite often a D-ring is going to be mounted right on the back of a frame. You think about, okay, well, if I put some kind of hanging device, even if it's just a nail head sticking out of the wall, then uh, I'm going to see that when I look from the side. There it is. So D-rings, where where they really excel is when they're kind of pointed inwards and you can uh, get a piece of uh, art hanging cable wire and wire in between the D-rings so that a central single hanger hidden behind the art itself uh, is the means at which uh, you hang the art. All right. So that's the three things. I said there were four. Toothed bar, drilled hole, and a D-ring. What's the fourth thing? Nothing. 
quite often, you are left to your own devices. You buy a piece of art or something that you want to hang on. Maybe it's something unconventional that isn't really designed to hang on a wall. Well, guess what? There's nothing back there. That's when you have to consider the other three things and uh, which one is best as far as attaching itself to the piece and therefore to the wall. And when all else fails, if there's just like, well, there's no way to attach this thing. I can't drill into it. I can't. Then uh, you may want to consider like uh, self-sticking Velcro attachers, 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 attachments. Uh, that may be an option as well. So you got to figure that out. So what are the three things we got to know before we actually get to the store and buy a hanger? We got to know the type of wall that we're going into, drywall, plaster, concrete, stone, etc. We need to know the weight of what you're hanging, and we need to be familiar with the anchor points on the item itself. What are we hanging this thing on? The tooth bar, the hole, the D-rings, etc. Then, and only then, can we approach the hanging department at the store, the hardware section, and say, this is the kind of hanger that I will use. We'll talk about those when we return. Your home with Dean Sharp, the house whisperer. Your home with Dean Sharp, the house whisperer. Thanks for joining us on the program. We are uh, continuing to talk about walls, walls and walls and walls. Uh, Earlier uh, in the program, we gave you all sorts of insights as to ways of, uh, or uh, concepts, I should say, uh, in terms of decor of how to make a wall taller, stronger, uh, cozier, uh, more expansive, all sorts of ideas. So if you missed that, make sure you go back, check us out on the podcast and uh, review. Right now, we're talking about uh, how to hang your stuff that you want to put on the walls up there. I just gave you uh, a little primer in the last segment of the things you need to know first before we go to the uh, hardware department at the store. Uh, you got to know what wall type it is. Uh, so we need to know if we're going into drywall, plaster, concrete, uh, we need to know the weight of what we're hanging, and we need to know what the anchor points that are built into this thing, if there are any. Toothed bar, uh, the drilled holes on the back, D-rings, wire, whatever the case may be. All right, so now we approach the hardware section because we are uh, looking for the device that we're actually going to use. Classic classic uh homeowner hack when people are like i'm not going to go to the hardware store just give me a nail just give me a nail i'm going to put it in the drywall at an angle and we're going to hang that thing on it well you know what here's the thing i don't really have an issue with that (laughs) uh a good angled nail a finished nail not a big old okay there's no advantage to a big fat nail as opposed to a little uh thin nail okay uh a finished nail that has a little bit of a head on it, uh, and the head acts as kind of a uh, sort of a safety, uh, you know, mechanism in case there's a little quake, and uh, you know the head keeps the wire from slipping off or whatever that may be. Uh, in drywall, uh, fine. Uh, a nail into plaster, not so easy. Plaster is really hard. It's actually kind of a technical form of, uh, you know, semi-concrete. So a nail into plaster or concrete, bad idea. Nail into drywall, not a bad idea, especially if you happen to hit a stud because then you're right through the drywall into the wood and, you know, there's really nothing wrong with a good angled nail. I say angled at an up angle because you want it to create a little, uh, you know, wedge-shaped nook for the wire or the hanger on the item itself to fall into securely, okay? Now, 
<clears throat> is there anything better than an angled nail into drywall? Yes, there is. Uh, a coarse thread drywall screw. Why? Because an angled nail can pull out more easily and a coarse thread screw is more secure. And all the other things that I just mentioned are true about that as well. Okay. Um, but if we're going to, and, and that, by the way, works on something that, you know, please do not use the angled nail or the coarse thread drywall screw to hang a precious piece of art on your wall that uh, if it were to fall, uh, would break and you would lose uh, something very near and dear to your heart and or a lot of money. Okay. These are just for those lightweight little things, little family pictures, so on and so forth that, you know, yeah, it would not be the end of the world if they got knocked off the wall or fell off the wall. Fine. Okay. Let's just get practical. Uh, but <clears throat> when we're talking about serious stuff, either heavier stuff or uh, more valuable stuff, then we want to choose some kind of hook that has an earthquake safety tab over it when possible. And I think you've seen those, you know, cup hooks quite often have uh, these little tabs and a lot of hangers in the, in the hardware section at the store, you're going to see, have a little metal spring tab right over it. Because once, uh, once you slide that, the item on to it, uh, the tab comes and kind of closes the loop and it's there. It's not an ultimate buffer. I mean, the house could certainly shake hard enough to get past it, but uh, it's a really, really good idea. An er a hook with an earthquake safety tab expanded uh, or uh, included on it. Now, <clears throat> that's the kind of stuff that just punches right through the drywall, okay? Understand the drywall is very soft, and so you want to make it uh, work once. Uh, you want that hole to be as clean as possible, and you want it to move as little as possible. Otherwise, you're going to loosen up the hole, and now you got a wobbly hanger, Okay. Uh, when it comes to drywall, do not, in my opinion, bother with expansion anchors. Now, an expansion anchor is these little plastic sleeves that you uh, make a hole in the drywall, you slide the sleeve in, and the whole idea is that now a screw, when it gets screwed into that sleeve, makes the two halves of the sleeve itself kind of open up and expand. Now, why we don't want to use expansion anchors in drywall because drywall is so soft. An expansion anchor will at first crush it. It will get in there and it'll get all tight. But the fact of the matter is putting pressure on the gypsum behind uh, the paper on drywall is no guarantee that you're not going to uh, actually just kind of uh, literally loosen up those particulates and make it loose again. In fact, a lot of people experience when they shove one of these wall anchors in and then they start to put the screw in right even before it gets started. If the screw is a little too snug in the anchor, the anchor just starts turning uh, in the wall, in the drywall itself, and it's just a waste. So I don't use expansion anchors for drywall. Better to use something that either A, goes into a stud, B, uh, just secures itself nicely, lightly in the drywall itself, or C, a hollow wall anchor, something that pushes through the drywall completely and then on the back side, okay, uh, attaches itself to the back side of the drywall. We're not requiring the whole shaft itself to be the securing, but something that has reached around from the backside and is essentially holding itself to the wall from the rear. That would include butterfly bolts. Now, those get big, so you only want to use it on big items. Um, 
expansion sleeves. Now, I'm not contradicting myself because there's a kind of expansion anchor that is designed to go all the way through the drywall, and the part that spreads apart does it behind the drywall so that it can't be pulled back out again. Does that make sense? So an expansion sleeve that spreads behind the drywall uh, or the simplest, and I just happen to think these are uh, super ingenious. I love these guys because they work for so many things, and that is called a monkey hook. Now, there's probably different. I called the monkey hooks on day one because the very first brand of this I saw was called a monkey hook. There's probably multiple manufacturers now, but a, a monkey hook <clears throat> is a, a, a one rigid piece of wire that has been bent into two dis- distinct shapes. It has a section that is bent up like a little hanger uh, so that you will, that's the part that's going to be visible on the wall when you're done. And that's where you're going to hang, uh, you know, your thing, your painting, the, the wire, the whatever. The rest of the monkey from that little piece, there's a little straight bar. That straight bar is what moves through the drywall. And on the back side of this is a large arc that curls back to the front. So what happens is you poke this into the wall, you feed that whole arc uh, back, and uh, it goes up and it sticks itself against the backside of the drywall. It's one simple application. It makes one tiny hole, and yet it is a super secure hook and really, really easy to do. Uh, monkey hooks, I think they got named that way because remember that uh, that game, those toys, Barrel of Monkeys? Mm-hmm. Remember the monkeys that their arms reached out and kind of curled down? Well, the backside of a monkey hook kind of looks that way, sort of has that reaching out curved effect. Anyway. Uh, highly recommend monkey hooks for small to medium stuff. Again, look at on the packages how much weight. Know the weight of what you're hanging. Look at how much weight these things are uh, uh, are set up to weigh. I'm going to throw one more thing at you. If you are a, uh, a vintage kind of uh, house uh, decor person uh, or if you are a, a super contemporary because both apply, and that is you might want to consider – not messing with your walls at all, no holes, no hangers there, and instead go back to a really old concept of installing near the top of the wall, not at the ceiling, okay, not like crown molding, but near the top of the wall, a line of what we call picture rail. Picture rail is a specialized molding that runs all the way around a room. It was designed when walls were plaster, and you don't want to make holes in plaster walls and mess them up. Uh, picture rail has a hook on it itself. It has an indentation. It has a ledge, essentially. And from that, you can hang special hooks that come down with usually decorative cords to the corners of your artwork so that all of the artwork is hanging from the picture rail at various heights. And you're like, well, that that works fine, Dean, if I've got a Victorian or, or a classic old house, but not in an ultra-contemporary home. Oh, au contraire, mon frere. <laughs> no. Uh, actually, uber-contemporary homes are have revived the picture rail. Now, it's not a old-looking piece of molding. It's actually like a steel rail that goes across. And instead of decorative velvet thick ropes or cords coming down, it's a single cable or even a rod at times coming down the wall to that cool piece of art. They are very cool. 
They're very contemporary, and they are, yet again, a great way of keeping you from putting holes all over your wall. And the other advantage, by the way, of Picture Rail, if you want to make that investment, is the fact that, yeah, let's decide you're changing it out. You know, ah, well, this picture was great here. I think I'd rather slide that over there, and I want to put different pictures here and a different, you know, it gives you the freedom to move things around. And guess what you don't have to do when you move things around on Picture Rail? You don't have to get out the spackle and the paint and touch up and fill holes that you made in the walls and repair the damage that your hangers made in the wall. So just saying, I'm just saying, you should know all of your options And that's a solid one. All right. I got more for you when we return. You're home with Dean Sharp, the house whisperer. Welcome home. Hey, thanks for joining us on the show today. Here we are in our last little segment before we are done for the day. But I am not done with you yet. Oh, no. No, I am not. Got a couple more things I want to throw at you real quick in regards to uh, uh, hanging stuff on your wall. So we've, we've covered the hangers, right? We've covered the hanging devices, how to prep, uh, how to uh, what to know before you go and actually buy the hanging device itself. Now, how about just a little bit of advice on uh, <clears throat> how to actually get it done? How high? How high should stuff be? Well, you know, that is obviously has a a lot to do with the configuration. If you're making a whole wall full of pictures, little pictures, then obviously some of them are going to be lower than what is quote unquote proper. Some of them might be higher. Um, But as a general rule, the rule is eye level uh, to the center of your artwork. Eye level to the center. Now, Eye level on average is somewhere between, uh, you know, just like the average Westerner, uh, somewhere between 57 and 63 inches. Uh, That's average eye level. We normally just like shooting from the hip. We're like, well, okay, what does 60 inches look like? However, uh, this is for you. It's for your home. It's for your family. You might want to take an average. You might want to measure everybody up, up to their eyeballs, and uh, see what the average is for the family. And then, you know, it's going to fall somewhere in there. And that's your number for your house and for people looking at your stuff. But to eye level to the middle of your art is the most comfortable viewing angle. This is the rule that uh, museums use all the time in regards to works of art as people are going through to find them. They go for eye level to the average center of the art itself. Okay. Uh, as far as the look on the wall is concerned, if we're really close to, let's say there's a doorway or a window right next to this piece of art, and let's say eye level to this art puts it just so that the frame compared to the casing on the door is just eh, an inch or two away from each other in height, then forget about the eye level thing and even the two up. You might just like set the top of the the art frame at the same height as the top of the casing. So it just feels right. Okay. Go to the tops of other elements, windows, doors, sconce lights, uh, your, the relationship of a sconce light coming off the side, uh, the relationship of a cabinet top or bottom. These are just things to take into, just look at the wall, take into consideration the things that are already there and, uh, play with the art, the two greatest tools. And here's where I'm ending with you today. The two greatest hanging tools that you can acquire in order to get this job done perfectly. Here they are. One, a laser level. 
You can get one for 30 bucks these days. It throws one uniform line level across the entire room, and you don't have to mark up the walls. And it doesn't matter what height that line is at. From there, you measure up, and you just you can get multiple pieces of art hung, boom, right on the money. You can also use the laser level vertically to make sure that the art that you've hung is, in fact, straight and plumb. That's the first tool. tool or more, however you want to spend. Lastly, a friend. Yep, a friend uh, is is invaluable when it comes to hanging your art. Tina and I do not hang art alone. We hang it together because one of us is holding the frame against the wall, and I'm like, how's this look? Up, down. She's like, up, down, left, right. Move it over there. Mm, That looks pretty good. She's like, I think that looks good. You want to see it? Of course. Yep. So she comes over, holds it. I step back. I'm like, yeah, that's it. Right on the money. Two people hanging one piece of art gets it done right every time. All right. Uh, It has been a pleasure being with you on the program today. I hope you learned a lot. I think you probably did. Thank you for all of our callers. uh, And thanks for everybody who uh, hangs in there with us and uh, is enjoying our third hour. Also, I want to remind you, now that I've got you all excited about transforming your home, let's figure out how you're going to pay for it. Do not miss what comes next, How to Money, a great new show with Joel Larsgaard coming up next right here on KFI as soon as we're done. He'll tell you, you know, how to afford all the stuff I've suggested. All right. I'm going to leave you with this thought today. <clears throat> Yesterday, you know, we did our interview thing. Tina asked me what I think most often stands in the way of truly transforming an ordinary house into something extraordinary. I was thinking about that question again this morning, wanting to give, I don't know, a more complete answer. What stands in the way of true transformation for a house? Eh? For a life. Well, there's no question in my mind that the first obstacle is honest self-knowledge. I'm not sure how many people actually give themselves permission to be utterly honest with themselves, honest about how they really feel, honest about what they really want. Now, for Tina and I, that has actually become the number one sign of a potentially very difficult project, a client who doesn't know themselves well enough, okay? In the past, when I was a hungry young designer who didn't want to ever say no to a commission, I would be tempted to look past that and just give them what I wanted for them. But I'll tell you, that never turns out well. You can't give someone else their story. They have to know themselves well enough to choose their own adventure. You and I have to know ourselves well enough to choose our own adventures. So what stands in the way of real transformation? A lack of self-knowledge, to be sure. You certainly can't plan an adventure if you have no idea where you want to go. But there's usually something else standing in the way of change. It's the fear of change. Or perhaps it might be more accurate to call it the fear of the cost of change. Transformation is change. And yes, change is gaining something new. So why wouldn't we be anything but excited? Well, because Change is also letting go. Change always costs us something. Change costs money. Sometimes change costs time. Sometimes it may cost you a relationship. But always, change will cost you some measure of what is right now predictable, controllable, and safe. Right? So what really stands in the way of true transformation? Uh, 
a lack of self knowledge and the age old tugless uh, age old endless tug of war within each of us between love and our fears. Love and fear, they're not opposites, but they really feel like it, and they often act like it. They both want the best for you, but they have very different ways of getting it. Love wants you to grow, to change, to become the best you. Love knows, as as Robin Sharma would say, that you can't live the same year 75 times and call it a life. Fear, on the other hand, wants to keep the you that you've already become safe and sound. Uh, And that's not a bad idea. Don't take unnecessary risks. Don't throw away what you already have. That's not bad advice. Love and fear are like two parents bickering over what is best for you. Who is right then? Well, it's not that easy, is it? Love certainly gets all the best press these days. Love wins. All you need is love, right? Wrong. As a card-carrying certified romantic, I can tell you this truth. Love unrestrained by any fear whatsoever, is an idiot who will mess up your life and maybe even get you killed. But let's be fair. Fear, if unrestrained, will shut you down from ever becoming anything other than what you are right now. Even worse, if fear succeeds in keeping you from growing, then you will not just stay the same. You will begin to shrink. So what are we to do? What do I want for myself? And what do I wish for you to find the balance? Now, I have no idea that where that is for you, but I know it's always there. I wish for you every good adventure. I don't want you to stay put or stay the same. I wish for you transformation. Explore, grow, become, but don't be an idiot. Know thyself. Honor the call of love. Take to heart the warnings of fear. Seek for yourself until you find yourself. And then when opportunity presents the next adventure, say yes. Then plan wisely. Pack wisely. Prepare wisely. Plan to stay as safe as you can. Take care of yourself the best you can. Let your fears make you wise and keep you alive. But don't stay where you are. Say yes. Let love say yes. Know thyself. Choose a destination. Invite your fears to be a wise companion on your journey so you won't be too reckless. But say yes. I know no better path of transformation and no better way to build yourself a beautiful life. Everybody, enjoy this Sunday. We'll see you right here. Next week. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.